Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. Good morning. On April 10th, 1922. Critical, and it's WBT, Charlotte, North Carolina. was born. And I remember we would listen to WBT. Yeah, this is a big broadcast for WBT. Look at that day out there. What do you want to hear tonight? Hello, WBT. You're on the air. Hello, Bob Lacey. Hello there, neighbor. Hello, first-timer. Let's take it by Trapuca. Let's go! It's best. Scored by Charlotte Hornet. History's been made. Hurricane Hugo has made landfall. Yeah, no power. No information coming into the station other than the telephone. It's a very special radio station because people care. It's the John Hancock radio program. Carolina Panthers have been named the NFL's newest expansion. God, with their first touchdown. Bank of America Stadium. Kind of jumping back and forth in our coverage here. a long, strange trip. It's still in. Throw me in the pool, please. Ray Carew's managed to evade police. David Chadwick. Plane has now crashed into the World Trade Center. Uh, it would appear purposeful. We'll be the first to welcome you to our little club thingy. I'm Stacey Sims. Charlotte's Mr. Wright. The Carolina Panthers are headed to Super Bowl 50. The Eagles are going to win the national. What's going to be the impact? We may of this? see some serious issues here at midnight. We're providing insight that they're not getting anywhere else. Mr. Trump, welcome to Charlotte Radio. Good morning, Bob. Hey, gather around, my friends, in this mythical ballot. WPT. The great colossus of the South. Through the years. I love this radio station as much as you guys do, but I love this radio station because of you guys. This powerful voice of the good stuff. This is Bo Thompson's Century Podcast. The Charlotte's Morning News franchise was launched on WBT in the mid-90s, but in September of 1997, a new era began with two simple words. Good morning. With that phrase, the Al Gardner era began as the well-traveled radio veteran arrived to helm WBT mornings for the next 14 years, the longest tenure for any AM host on this AM station since Grady Cole. Major top story this morning, overseas markets down again overnight. London's main index down 7%. Brad Schultz is out right now sampling opinions on this. One of the mightiest bull markets may be stumbling, but no one... In the early years of the show, Al was joined by names like Bill Rosinski, AccuWeather's Dr. Joe Sobel and his eventual first co-host Danny Fontana. There you go, Bob. You know, the people hate my laugh. You get people out there saying, laugh like a hyena. I mean, if I tried to suppress this, my my ankles would blow (laughs) off. You know, you know what? You really impressed me when uh, you first got here and we met, and you and you looked at me and you said, "Now don't laugh, Fontana." He said, "You know, you know, you look like you're still in pretty good shape." <laughs> yeah, that's right. I knew Fontana would laugh. Hey, your wife said you're out jogging the other day. When I, called you. <laughs> yeah. I was chasing the beer truck. That was. <laughs> In 2002, television anchor Stacy Sims joined the show as Gardner's second co-host. Charlotte's Morning News with Al Gardner and Stacy Sims. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us. This is really developing and changing. We had a tornado watch until 7. What's happening now? Well, just take a look out the, the window now, Chris. You can see the leaves blowing off the trees and the branches moving furiously around as the rain is starting to come down. It's going to be a yep. doozy. Basically from Charlotte and through southern portions of Mecklenburg County down towards the WBT News Time 830. Good morning. I'm Al Gardner. This is Charlotte's 20 News for Wednesday, December 21st, 2011. I'm Stacey Sims. WBT's top story. He's only been the chair a couple of weeks, but already the head of the Mecklenburg County Commission is under investigation. Well, first they argued over seat assignments. Then on a more serious note, they moved over to investigate WBT's Mark Garrison live in the news center. with Stacey remained in that role for the next decade. One constant throughout every incarnation of Charlotte's Morning News has been John Stokes, who still anchors every newscast, and he's done it at WBT for 32 years. Let's get you right to the news desk and John Stokes. Car versus train overnight, in this case, the new Lynx light rail line. News Talk 1110 WBT. Longtime WBT sports director Jim Zoki also joined the show in later years. So the franchise tag protects the Panthers from losing Jordan Gross in free agency, and that's good news, Jim Zoki. Yeah, now they've got uh, both of the tackles back, Travell Wharton on one side, and now Jordan Gross, and uh, so Jordan... And speaking of longevity, for nearly a decade and a half, Al Gardner was the voice of record in Charlotte Radio. 
from 9-11. WBT Live, we just witnessed on CBS and ABC on television, another plane has now crashed into the World Trade Center. Uh, it would appear purposeful. To severe weather coverage. To be a part of the Operation Stormwatch Weather Watch. To breaking news. In Tel Aviv, I'm Al Gardner on Special Assignment. And to even moments like this. With us on the Newsmaker line is the Barnmeister, the purple one. Barney, good morning. Good morning. How are you? <laughs> well, I don't know yet. Now, you're going to be at the Charlotte Coliseum? That's right. How about that? How many shows? <laughs> oh, we're going to be doing, let's see, one, uh, the, one, two, three, oh, about five shows. With us on the Newsmaker line is Santa. Come to find out that Bo Thompson, who is our captain of the control, he sat on the knee of our next guest when he was just but a little Bo. Clearly, Santa, you remember Bo, don't you? Oh, of course, long time ago. Long time ago. Was he a good boy? I remember he had a few little problems. In, <laughs> in December of 2011, Al moved on from WBT to launch a news operation for Merlin Media in Philadelphia. So where have life's travels taken him since then? Well, we're about to find out. As WBT nears its own century mark, it's time to reconnect with the voice of this station at the turn of the century and into the new millennium. And the guy who is on the line with me right now, uh, I know he, perhaps more than most people, has an appreciation for what it means for a three-call letter heritage station to hit the century mark. There aren't many of these in the country. Uh, my next guest has worked for a few three-call letter stations, including the mighty WBT. And uh, he is someone I know really, really well because I was here when he started and I came back here when he finished. And he and I intertwine in our WBT careers. But uh, I'm going to say, even though I don't know what time somebody might be listening to this podcast, I'm going to say Good morning, because I want to hear the guy on the other end say that phrase, too. <laughs> Bo Thompson, good morning. Al Gardner, it is uh, awesome to hear your voice. And Grady Cole, of course, was a three-decade morning man for WBT. But when Grady Cole started way back, I mean, Grady, Grady was essentially the only game in town. He is, and you learned a lot about him when you were here, bigger than life, yep. uh, personified not only WBT, but also Charlotte Broadcasting and Carolina Broadcasting all together. So outside of Grady Cole, the longest running morning show man in Charlotte in modern times is Al Gardner. You were there for almost 15 years, yep. uh, 1997 to 2011. And I remember 1997 because the first full-time job I had out of, out of college at Davidson College was working on your morning show. But before we get into those 15 years, because you saw and you heard a lot, and you have a perspective uh, doing mornings here, that uh, the longevity that no one else has, uh, I hope maybe someday I will, but I'm 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 just scraping half of that right now. So no question. But no before question we get to your time here, I don't think a lot of people know what Al Gardner did before he got here. Yeah, yeah. Let me kind of condense it down a little bit. When we were kids, we were like 10, 11 years old. Uh, disc jockeys on radio in Philadelphia, where I'm from, were like stars. You know, names like Highlight and Joe Niagara and people like that. If anybody, if as you listen, if you've been listening. Uh, and you know anything about Philadelphia, you might know the name High Lit. Legendary. He was Philadelphia's Grady Cole, if you will, except he was a rock and roll disc jockey. Well, as 10 or 11-year-old kids, we used to, you know, talk up records and try to hit the post. And, you know, what that means is the instrumental part of a song starts. And then when the vocal starts, you stop with a split second to allow the vocal to come in. So we used to do this just riding our bikes around Levittown, Pennsylvania, and pretend we're disc jockeys. My dad worked for KYW Television, was a genius engineer. My dad was incredible. He built us a radio station at 9 Pinewood Drive in Levittown. Huh. We had the tallest pine tree, and he had me shimmy up the top of the pine tree <laughs> and uh, put the antenna wire up. And he built a board out of wood and had a couple of turntables, and we were rocking and rolling. We actually wound up getting a cease and desist from the FCC <laughs> because my dad w built it in a way that we could successfully blot out commercial radio stations and take over for them. So a one-mile radius around our house you couldn't get WIBG or WFIL. We were the only game in town. So, of course, we got reported and we got shut down. But that was my entry into it. And I realized, my gosh, if, if the FCC contacted us to shut us down, that means this stuff matters. People <laughs> listen. 
this is important. And that was kind of my start. Uh, I wound up going into television, working in a mailroom, becoming a cameraman and those kinds of things. But I was like 30 years old, 31 years old. My brother Bill said, look, if you get into news, you'll never starve. Why don't you go to WIBG and try to become a newsman? So I did. I knocked on the door and they did a voice test and they liked the way I sound. I couldn't type, you know, none of those things. And so I walked into WIBG and began as a stringer reporter doing stories on like local restaurants as a feature or, you know, I'd mic myself. I was trying to learn how to box at the time, too. I wanted to be a fighter when I was young. It's a long, boring story. But I would put a mic on myself and go into the ring and, you know, try to get the listener to experience that. That got me hired in Orlando, which was my first full-time radio job in 1978. And I wound up being a news director there in 1979. That's kind of how it started. So you went to uh, Orlando. And what station in Orlando were you working for? WLOF and BJ105, both stations, where... I was Al Gardner at WLOF, but they made me change my name on BJ105 so that I could sound. I, I guess I guess they felt they were fooling the listener, which they probably were not. <laughs> so I was Lee Simpson. Lee Simpson. In, uh, Orlando, <laughs> yeah. But then I went to Cincinnati, and that was a big job. WLW uh, was one of those stations that was chartered back during World War II yeah. as, you know, for strategic reasons being able to beam overseas. So they had a half million watt transmitter. So they would broadcast at WLWO for overseas, WLWS for South America. It was amazing. And the heritage of that radio station, given the fact that, you know, people like Rod Serling and all the big names had worked there uh, back in the old days, uh, that heritage was very similar to the way WBT going back to Grady Cole and the Briarhoppers and the way the perception, how it's part of Charlotte's DNA, that's how WLW was. Yeah. So for me to take a news director's job in a 22-man news department, 22-person, I should say, uh, in a union shop at that uh, was my biggest challenge. Uh, I'm happy and proud to say if you listen to WLW today, they still format the news exactly the way I set it up. Which oh, wow. Yeah, when it's last time through Cincinnati, that was a nice ego thing. <laughs> so, but uh, anyway, that's just part of the history of, uh, you know, the news. I had done a, uh, a period of time in television in San Antonio. I started in television in Cincinnati working for Channel 12. George Clooney's father, Nick Clooney, was my boss. Tremendous anchorman. And then I went from there to San Antonio to take both a radio and a television job where I was the main anchor there. And also the uh, editor, uh, producer, so that I could also help with the decision-making process. All of which wound up going to WFLA in Tampa. Right. I was there for eight years. And then I got the call to go to the big one. And that is WBT. So wait a minute. How many, for those keeping score at home, how many three-letter heritage call stations are on your resume i unfortunately i don't think they're that many kyw is the shortest most recent one uh here in philadelphia wlw and wbt and i think that may be it well al that's three that's uh that's that's plenty i mean oh wait a minute i forgot what the station my dad bought uh built for us when we were 11 years old w PB that stood for Pete and Bill. Bill was my older brother who was bigger than me. Pete was his best friend, and I didn't rate an A. Now was so, I wrong? Uh, was WJR on there? Or did that maybe something you said to me in passing along the way? No, WJR offered me a wonderful position. Okay. Dick Hafner, the news director, who may still be up there, one of the sweetest people you know. Uh, but I never actually worked for him. I mentioned WJR to you, yeah, uh, because I have to tell you, Bo. Someday, if you get a chance, listen to the guy who I consider to be the gold standard uh, for Morning Guys. In addition to Ty Boyd for Charlotte, there was a guy by the name of J.P. McCarthy, who was the morning guy in uh, Detroit. If you ever get a chance to hear an air check, do it, because it's all about warmth. It's all about when he's on the air, you feel like he's sitting in the car next to you. You feel like his arm is around you. You never feel like he's lecturing you. And you feel like you can trust him. And most importantly about JP that I learned, which is why I think he became so successful, it's not about him. It was about the story and it was about the people who were listening. You know, And that's what you get. 
And I love listening to you for that reason, because you get that. It's not about you and, hey, all eyes have to be on you. It's about what is the story that you're trying to convey? What's its level of importance and what's your success in successfully conveying it? You know, that's what it's about. It's not about the individual. Now, talk radio is different, you know, with uh, John Hancock, legendary, one of the sweetest guys you'll ever know. They, again, coming back to the point that you can't hide what you are. When you hear John, that's who John is. Laugh and cry on the air. That's who he is. With John, it is about him because he is a talk host. He's paid to have opinions. He's paid to have people like him, and he's paid to have people dislike him. Different thing. So when I talk to you about Al Gardner, is that does that seem like a foreign thing to spend much time talking about you? Uh, not really, because I'm in that body, and it's my real name. <laughs> but, but when I say, but you're right, though, because, and I mentioned this a little bit earlier, uh, we play in different sandboxes, you and me, than John Hancock does, or, yep. you know, somebody over the years at Beach, we have Vince Coakley right now, and Keith Larson in the past, you know, talk show hosts. It's a different sandbox, and we don't have the luxury of long winding segments sometimes now i'm not saying i mean being able to fill a long winding segment is an art in of itself but it's also and i can say this now having done it for seven years and having watched you do it and worked with you all those years it's equally an art to be able to craft a short three to five minute segment and make sure that you have a start and an end that is sometimes i'd say even harder I think it is, and I think that that's really what makes our format unique. You experience this every day. It's really all about economy of word use. You know, if you can use fewer words to get into something, make a short question, get to your guest, let them do the talking, and then get back to you in economy of word use type terms, you can get a lot more accomplished. I think that is uh, an art form because, number one, the listener on the way to work in the morning doesn't have a lot of time. Right. And, you know, they're listening in their car, but they're worried about their boss and what their boss is going to yell at them about and what their challenges of that day might be. So, you know, your first order of business is you got to grab them by the collar and yank them to the speaker somehow and get their attention. Well, how do you do that? You know, mine was good morning and some other stuff. You know, uh, everybody, I think, has little different devices. But once you've got them, now you've got to hold their attention. And the, I, I think the way you do that is with economy of word use, with being able to introduce a segment in very short terms. I actually used to write out some of my intros because if there's a very hard concept, you're talking about a new medicine or you're talking about a part of the world that maybe people wouldn't necessarily have at the top of mind. You've got to find some way within really seven seconds if you don't have their attention within seven or ten seconds, you're not going to have them. So you got to be able to somehow say, here's why this part of the world is important today, because we're under threat from X, Y and Z. And on the newsmaker line is Joe Blow. Joe, good morning. You know, I yeah. mean, it, it's it's really you're right. It's one thing to fill four hours of talk radio. And those guys are wonderful. But what you do, I think, is a much better and in some ways more difficult part. Well, and here's something I learned from you very, very early in the process, and it was really just by listening to you. But you talk about word economy, and uh, I've listened to you talk about word economy for years, and I believe you're the best I've ever heard at uh, at word economy. But you know what else is important with that word economy is inflection and the yep. way you say something. So just as important as having a succinct amount uh, or succinct phrase and uh, making the most of that time, it's the accentuation of certain syllables and the way you say things because that right there that's an art unto itself and i really do as i talk to you i'm not trying to blow smoke here i believe you're the best i've ever heard at doing that uh in in succinct phrases but giving it that warmth or giving it that authoritative sound that it needs and uh just one syllable of the way that you end a sentence or the way that you say uh a, a word is is a huge thing well, I was just thinking about when you said that, and thank you, thank you so much for everything you've said, Bob. I really appreciate it. And believe me, the feeling is mutual times ten. I immediately couldn't think, couldn't help but think of Nick Clooney. When I was working with him, I was in television up in Cincinnati, and he was teaching us the ropes. And uh, you would read a sentence like, uh, "The cost of such and such has gone up twenty percent in the last two months," you know. And here's reporter Joe Blow to tell you why. Well, I was substituting anchor on the weekend, and Nick Clooney, George's dad, would say, Al, 
underline 20%, physically underline it on your teleprompter copy. So when it comes up on camera, you're going to see double underline. The cost of bread has gone up 20% mm-hmm. in the last two months. So every time I was on the air, I always thought of Nick Clooney and that stupid double underline, <laughs> you know, because of every sentence you're ever going to say in your whole life, there's usually one or two words that matter more than the others. You know, that one word that you really want to connect. And so I've always mentally underlined. I'm sure you probably have a probably a similar system. Uh, we could talk about this forever, and this is what I love about you: is you and I kind of are on the same wavelength about uh, sound quality and and as you say, word economy and making the most out of a small chunk of time uh, so that you don't waste a listener's time. I mean, you made your, your whole life's work uh, in radio essentially about that, at least in the morning uh, time, because you're talking to a commuter. But I want to get back to the timeline of Al Gardner. So you took us all the way to WFLA in Florida, in Tampa, and then you went to Atlanta, same company, but WGST, a very well-respected news operation at the time, competing with WSB there in that very competitive Atlanta market, and then from GST to WBT. So uh, this is uh, the, the last the last few steps before you got to Charlotte. Take me back to that point and then, and then walk us back. Walk us to, to one Julian Price place. Sure thing. Yeah, I was at WFLA for like eight years. You know, kids came along. Life is changing. Everything's going really well. Got an opportunity to go to Atlanta where they needed not only some coaching in the morning drive, but also they needed a news director. And again, it was a 35-person news operation. So it was an opportunity for me to go in, maybe uh, see what issues, why weren't they getting the ratings that they wanted, why weren't they getting the revenue that they wanted, and try to take a big-picture approach to a bigger market. Atlanta was a lot of fun. But in doing all that, I got a chance to meet Sean Hannity. Uh, we had brought him in from Huntsville. I do you? I guess you know some of his history, don't you, Bo? Hannity? Yeah. I, not as well as you, but I know kind of thumb, thumbnail sketch, maybe. Yeah, he was in California. He was like building decks, and, you know, he got a job at a radio station out there and got thrown off for being a little bit too controversial. And Huntsville, Alabama liked that. They brought him in. And then we brought him in for like $28,000 to WGH, to 28 Gs a year. Now he's making, what, tens of millions. Right. But immediately fell in love with him as a person. A really nice, genuine guy. Don't agree with a lot of him politically, what he has to say, but he's one of the best students of radio that I've ever known. You know, somebody very early in my radio career, a guy by the name of Al Gardner, I was in Atlanta at the time, research at the radio station said you should do one topic for three hours. I'm like, okay, this is ridiculous. I never wanted to do one topic. But anyway, there was a, a value jet crash. It was like two months after the crash, and management was telling me, you needed that's your topic A for the day. Talk about that for three more hours. And I'm like, there's nothing left to be said. So I was at lunch with this guy, and he said to me, and it was one of the best pieces of advice I ever got in my career. He said, look, if this doesn't work, you'll get fired, not them. He goes, if you do what you want and you succeed because you truly believe in it, which is the advice that I followed, constantly was getting in trouble for it, I just did the show my way, and I followed my natural instincts and interests. And what he said to me, I'll give you the exact words. He goes, it's your bat, your ball, your ass. It's your career. And do you want to go out losing or failing their way? Or do you want to go out trying to be who you are? And, well, here I am. So I guess his advice helped a lot. He's a great broadcaster. I learned a lot from him. Really great. Well, probably the best, one of the best formatics. Him and Scott Slade of, of WSB in Atlanta. Probably the two best formatically radio hosts I've ever heard in my life. They're just tremendous broadcasters, both of them. And I just learned a lot from listening to both of them. Great guys. We knew that he was going to go very, very far. And we had the privilege of showing him, you know, why are ratings important? You know, how does revenue work? How do we attract audience? How do we chase audience? All of these things. But uh, it was really great. And while I was there, that was the only time in my life I've ever had an opportunity to go to five different places. It was for whatever reason, summer of 97. I got like five calls of people who said, hey, you want to come work for us? I think it was based on the success of Tampa. I have no idea. My first choice actually was Portland. So I accepted the Portland job. And then it turned out there was a corporate issue 
I think a guy named Greg Jarrett, who you may be familiar with, wound up getting that job when I turned it down. But second on the totem pole was WBT. And I was familiar with Ty Boyd. I thought it was the best morning guy I'd probably ever heard. And uh, then that was when Rick Jackson called and he put me on speaker and we started talking. And you know Rick. You worked for Rick. Rick Jackson and Bill White, to me, are the two finest people that I've ever known in the business in terms of management. I'm talking to one on the, on the phone right now, but <laughs> in terms of managers. So on the phone, I start talking to Rick Jackson. And the second I talk to him, and he was interviewing me, I kind of wanted to know what kind of person he was. What was why was he in radio? What was his aim? Uh, what does he want to do with the radio station? What's important to him? How important is the sense of duty? Because to me, there are some who have in the past almost tried to ruin radio by using it as a forum for disinformation rather than to accept that sense of duty that you have when the storm hits or election night happens. And everything he said impressed me. And I remember leaving the phone saying to my wife, I've got to work for this man. This is this is a special guy. So they flew me in, uh, met another really terrific guy I enjoyed. Randall Bloomquist was the program director at the time. Mm -hmm. uh, a, a columnist for a trade magazine who they took a chance on, made program director. And we had a lot of fun together. But uh, once into the radio station, I think it was July 4th of 1997, and I believe we were doing a sky show from the old Memorial Stadium. The spinners had been brought in. Yeah, that uh, would have been uh, that would have been the 70. Let me think about this. The 75th anniversary summer 1997, because I know they did a big celebration. That must have been that was maybe your, your audition trip of Charlotte. Come down and see what Charlotte's like and see what this WBT thing is. Is, is that what that was? Had you been hired yet then? No, I was not hired yet, but I was brought in. I think they took a run at Jason Lewis, and he was not available. So I think I was choice number two, <laughs> is what I've heard kind of in the wind since then. But um, as I was brought in, uh, I had not spent a lot of time in Charlotte, but I knew who Grady Cole was. And I knew who Ty Boyd was. John Stokes I had worked with in Tampa. Right. And as you know, John is the best in the business. You'll never, ever hear a local news anchor who can come anywhere close to what John Stokes does effortlessly on an hourly basis. A lot of There's people, no I bet, though, listening to this uh, who are history buffs of WBT uh, may not realize that you and Stokes had worked together. I knew it, but uh, I don't know that you ever talked much on the air about that, the fact that you and John had a history together before uh, either one of you got to Charlotte. We did. I think he was in his late 20s or early 30s, very young when he was brought in to be the news director of WFLA. And I was leaving Cincinnati at that time looking for something in Florida because I wanted a little bit warmer weather. And uh, John Stokes brought me in. It was great for the princely sum of $17,000 per year back in <laughs> 1985. And uh, that was where I got to work for him and see his incredible work ethic. You talk about word economy. You talk about just being able to do everything right. You know, how to sound authoritative by being natural, how to get into sound, how to get out of sound, how to hold the listener, how to select stories, you know, how to make sure that the listener gets what he or she wants, but also what you know will flavor their day, something funny to say or, you know, however that balance happens. There's no one better and there never will, will be anyone better than Sean Stokes. But, yeah, we worked together in, in uh, Florida quite successfully. Well, so uh, you came to Charlotte, you uh, you took the job at WBT, and so this is the fall of 1997, and just to give listeners an idea of my trajectory here, and this is where you and I cross paths, I worked at WBT when I was in high school, I worked when I was in college, and I was basically in that mode of not full-time, but I lived in Charlotte, and I went to school at Davidson, so I was close enough to the station that I, you know, I did whatever jobs they'd let me do to, to stay on board during those years. And then when I graduated in 1997, I thought I was coming here to produce Jerry V's show, Jerry Valancourt, who was doing a sports show at the time. And it was a very, uh, it was one of the more successful shows on the station at that time. Uh, Jerry's actually back in this market, but working for a different station. But a lot of people, of course, remember listening to Jerry V. And I thought that's the show I was going to do uh, in the afternoons. And then the program director you speak of, Randall Bloomquist, 
who uh, had hired me full-time. He knew I was going to come in, but i never forget he called me, and I was actually up at Davidson. I think I was uh, finalizing some stuff with my uh, records to, you know, leaving the school because I had just graduated, but I was up there at the registrar's office, and I remember he called me and said, uh, when can you start? And I said, I can start the Monday before Labor Day. And he said, I got one thing I want to add to it. And he says, I don't want you to do afternoons. I want you to work in the morning. And I said, okay. And he said, we have a new guy coming in. His name is Al Gardner. Be in my office uh, on Saturday morning at whatever time, and you can meet him, and this is who you're going to be working with. And I remember I had I had no idea what it was it was out of the blue because I didn't know you were coming. I knew someone was coming, but I didn't know who it was yet. And he had uh, chosen me, provided that you and I would hit it off. And uh, so so there we were. We did, and we started Charlotte's Morning News in the incarnation or in the in the stylings of the way that it is right now because it still has your DNA all over it. But <laughs> but Charlotte's Morning News in the modern times began. If I'm correct about this, uh, I believe it was right after Labor Day 1997. Is that how you remember it? That's exactly right. Uh, Lauren Fox, Brad Schultz, and Bo Thompson behind the board. And your technical wizardry from the moment I saw you in action. Uh, Oh, my gosh. This is really something, which I think is why the DNA of that broadcast has gotten so much improved uh, over the years. But, yeah, that's exactly how I remember it. Um, I remember Lady Di had perished not yes. too recently, so we're still well, doing a lot of coverage off of that. I was about but, to ask you if you remember what the very first big story that we covered was, because I remember be meeting with you, I think, in that initial meeting about here's the show we're going to do, and maybe I was there for a week getting getting it ready. And uh, then the first show that we did, boom, one of the uh, iconic stories of all all time, Uh, you know, Princess Diana killed in a car accident. And I remember Elton John released that song, Goodbye, England's Rose. You know, he he redid the song. And I remember coming on the air that week and I remember you and I talking. I think we had had some sort of conversation in the week leading up to... uh, uh, what should we cover? What will be big in the news? And I don't know, maybe it was Festival in the Park because <laughs> it was September. Yeah. <laughs> and then, boom, right. we hit the air with your show, Charlotte's Morning News with Al Gardner. And uh, we have one of the uh, most iconic stories that you can think of uh, to cover. And so right off the bat, I saw you in action in breaking news mode and developing story mode. And uh, I can tell you, uh, as the show exists today, so much of that breaking news and that developing the brand of the station and reinforcing to the listener and the verbiage and all of that, uh, more than anything else, when there is breaking news on this radio station and I'm behind the microphone, the voice that I hear in my head of how it's done (laughs) is yours. And I I am dead serious, and I mean that, and uh, I hope you you know that 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 torch uh, that that part of Al Gardner carries on in, in 2019. When I think about us working together, I think of election coverage. Whenever we did election coverage, I always wanted to have you there because you understood how elections and politics intertwine with what news talk radio is all about. Why that's so important. Never mind the fact that it's a sense of duty. We have to report what's the result of the election, who's going to win, who's likely to lose, what are the consequences of that. You know, you got all that. So I remember the first time I brought you in, you were basically, I think I had you as an executive producer so that I didn't have to think about anything but being on the air. And you just put together an incredible menu of spokespeople and experts and you know the candidates themselves the sound because you're a sound painter like nobody i've ever known i think that's what i when i think of the things that i'm most proud of over the 15 years at wbt i think probably it's those breaking news coverages uh, that we work together well let me uh, let me point you to to me and I want to see if you agree with this and also get your reaction to this. I have one piece of audio to play for you right now. You, sure. probably, you probably know what's coming. But uh, if to me, uh, the, the moment, the defining moment of Al Gardner on WBT during the years that you were here has to be this one. News Talk 1110 WBT 852 The Time. A plane has crashed into the World Trade Center in New York. WBT Live, we just witnessed on CBS and ABC on television, another plane has now crashed into the World Trade Center. Uh, It would appear purposeful. 
Now, obviously, you've been here for, what, three, four years at that point in time, and oh, yeah. you'd covered uh, countless breaking news stories in your career at radio stations before that. But uh, that moment right there, I'll, I'll never forget it. I wasn't in the room with you that day. I was doing uh, imaging for the station overall, but I was driving into the station as we knew this was uh, breaking, and I'll never forget you saying it would appear purposeful, that yeah. phrase, and that stuck with me ever since it happened because it, it reinforced me at that moment, choosing the right words in a moment where you had to realize that this perhaps was going to be the biggest story that you'd ever covered. And that's saying a lot, Al. I didn't have that sense as much as, holy, you know what? Right. You know? <laughs> it's like when you're in that moment, it's like uh, you have an obligation to not be over emotional. Because over the years, as you know, you report very sad stories and you can't just break down and cry, even though maybe you feel like it or a funny story. You can't just laugh for 15 seconds and leave the audience hanging or whatever it is. You've got to be a professional. You've got to get through that and then save your emotions for later. And that was my first thought was, wow, this is big. And uh, we still didn't know at that point what happened with the first plane. But when we're watching and literally the graphics said live, I think it was ABC television, one of several monitors we had up. And when I saw the wing dip and literally the plane go right in on purpose, it was like, well, this is an attack. Now, what am I going to say about this? And that's when you just have to tr you, know, you trust your instincts. And luckily, nothing profane came out. But, you know, it reminds me of several things. One, I'm very... Uh, distressed that the news today, the word breaking news has been overused so much that it's broken. Uh, when it's breaking is when it's happening. Right then, that was breaking news. But within 15 minutes to 30 minutes later, now it's continuing coverage or continuing team coverage. The story has already broken. But because radio and television exec executives know that the words breaking news can do for a radio station or TV station like the word good morning did for me personally. People react to it. So what happens now is you'll see Wolf Blitzer come on and go, breaking news, and it's 5 p.m. Right. And this is a story you saw at 10 o'clock that morning that is now not breaking news. Isn't it ironic that that moment was the ultimate example of breaking news, and yet it gave birth to an era of breaking news that wasn't really breaking news. That's well said. No, that was breaking, and so many things changed that day. The way we look at, at each other around the world, suspicions and fears and all of the things that I think that people went through when Pearl Harbor was attacked. All of a sudden, oh, my heavens, we're under attack. You know, one of my pillars over the years was David Chadwick. One of the sweetest, most wonderful men, and you and I agree on this. Uh, as a matter of fact, to digress again, when I came in on September 1997 for the job interview, David Chadwick was on the air. Mm -hmm. And I heard this magnificent voice, and I said to Randall Bloomquist, what do you want with me? Put this guy on the air. <laughs> He's awesome. Give him the morning show. You know, but... David, to me, is one of the finest people who, by the way, back to 9-11, got us through the subsequent week. Right. If you'll recall, he acted almost like a rational therapist would collectively to get everyone listening to WBT through that incredible drama. As a matter of fact, I still have a little stone that Rick Jackson gave us. It was one of the record high ratings where for a period of months, WBT was literally number one in every demographic measurable, uh, largely because of the efforts of people like David Chadwick to keep us together as a community. I have that same uh, stone because he gave it to yeah. all the people and all the support people, too. And I know exactly which one you're talking about. Now, back yeah. to 9-11. Am I right? I mean, it's because it's interesting as you talk about your mindset when that story was breaking. And it makes sense now that you tell it that way, because uh, how could you know what that was going to turn into? And yet somehow, you were, in my eyes, able to encapsulate it just about perfectly, not knowing what was coming. But uh, I want to ask you that question on two levels. Uh, a, could you have ever imagined it would turn into what it did in the grand scheme of things of what happened in New York City and beyond that day? And, and B, was that the most significant news story that you ever were on the air while it was happening? It absolutely was, by any measure. Uh, I could think of a number of other stories, power outages. We mentioned election coverages, hurricanes, little 
number of hurricanes in Florida. When I was down there, we had an eyewitness account of a pier literally breaking away. It's a big, large commercial pier that extended a quarter mile into the Gulf of Mexico, literally breaking away from its moorings and floating out into the Gulf. We had eyewitnesses of a guy in tears calling us on WFLA during a Category 3, I think it was, Hurricane Elena, where the entire county of Pinellas County was evacuated. You think of moments like that, but they pale in comparison to 9-11 because we knew the consequences were going to be large. We knew we were under attack. You felt not only that you're doing a job on the air, but you felt like as a citizen, I personally have been violated. I don't want to cheapen it or in any way minimize what you and I do for a living or did for a living. But it's almost like play-by-play where it's one thing if you're doing a sports play-by-play of a team and something else if you're invested in that team and you feel like you have a stake. Well, all of a sudden, this is planes running into buildings that are part of our society and something that we never saw before. One of the joys, Bo, you remember this very well, was how patriotic everybody became. We all came together. Flags were flown. I miss that now. You couldn't drive down the block and not see every house with an American flag. It made you feel really good. We are told between 150 and 200 passengers were stranded at Charlotte's airport a little bit earlier. Obviously, Mayor Pat McCrory has taken to WBT and said, fly the flag if you possibly can. The monitoring the situation and doing everything we can and working with the local, state, and federal authorities, we have an excellent team that continues to work very well together here at the Emergency Operations Center. The Red Cross is actively soliciting blood donations in the wake of today's tragedy. Charlottians lined up in large numbers to give blood in response to terrorist attacks in New York and Washington, and more blood donations are likely to be needed for the rest of the George week. W. Bush went up to New York and threw out that first pitch to make people get back to doing what they were doing and, you know, make people go to baseball games, and he threw a perfect strike. Everybody kind of came together, so there was that. But along with that came so much else. Agencies that were there to sort of keep a close eye on our fellow Americans who maybe were of a different religion and we didn't trust them. And so many things happened. ICE now, which is being so much talked about uh, politically, was brand new then, a response to 9-11. So much has changed. And I think we're still kind of in the aftermath. Other than 9-11... What stories during your tenure at WBT, your almost 15 years, what stories uh, were the most memorable? What are a few of them that you remember very well? Well, I think, uh, gosh, anything having to do with the Panthers, anything having to do with the Hornets and the death of, uh, gosh, I'm ashamed to say I don't remember the gentleman's name. You'll remember him. He was coming out of the uh, Hornets practice and ran his car. Bobby Phils. Bobby You know, things like that that just stunned you. I was at the gym with Randall Bloomquist doing a boxing workout when everybody's phone went off. I was like, oh, my gosh, Bobby Phils is dead. Well, that, that can't be Bobby Phils of the then Hornets. So we literally stopped what we are doing, didn't even shower, went right to the radio station, funky, full of sweat, and began our carpet bomb coverage, of which I'm sure you were a part. Well, and, and <laughs> so, you know, you mentioned that kind of coverage. Uh, you taught me that work ethic when there's breaking news uh you go to work it's what you do and you stay on the air as long as it's needed and i remember stories like uh the impeachment coverage that we did with bill Huge. clinton uh back in yep. 1999 that you and michael graham and uh who was it i guess david chadwick were on the air for a lot of that coverage uh, I'm, I'm sure that story ring you know, the, the end of the clinton era you were on the air for that and monica Lewinsky yep. too Michael Graham was one of the most brilliant natural talk show hosts that I've ever known. And I remember when they first took a chance on him and he wound up pinging a big six share at night. And everybody was now six in numerical terms. You're doing really well. Yeah. And uh, they're like, who is this guy? And then I got to know him personally. He was an incredible gifted musician. He was a former political consultant and, and also a stand up comic who had worked all around the country. In fact, Michael Graham told the story about working out in, I think it was North Dakota. And uh, he walks up on the microphone. One of the guys is drinking beer. Great big North Dakota guy yells up on the stage, hey, funny man, who's playing music tonight? (laughs) And uh, Michael Graham says, there's no one playing music tonight. I'm a stand-up comic. I'm just about to start my act. Guy comes up, says, 
not anymore. And he takes a knife and he cuts the wire and basically signs Michael Graham off on stage. He'd been all over the country doing his comic act. So he took this comedy, this political consultant job, which he explained to me was if you're a political consultant, find an issue, find a white knight who's going to fix that issue, find someone you can demonize as, you know, the, the black knight, if you will. And, uh, he used that kind of as the banner on his talk show and conflating comedy and political science together made for a successful show. Also one heck of a wonderful guy. So yeah, I think immediately of Michael Graham. I think he was the reason why we did so well in the Bill Clinton impeachment coverage. So you had the impeachment coverage and then you fast forward a few years later and you have the, the crazy election of the year 2000 between Al Gore and George W. Bush. Uh, you were on yep. the air that night. I remember being in the studio that night when we had that election that lasted, uh, what, another month before it was <laughs> the, yeah. the hanging chads in, in Florida. I mean, that you yep. were on the air through that. That was a big story. It was absolutely huge. And then fast forward to 2008, which seems to me like 10 minutes ago, where now we're talking to Hillary Clinton on Charlotte's Morning News, and we're talking to uh, Fred Thompson. Mm-hmm. We're talking literally all these people. Michael Huckabee, I remember yeah. you know, talking to him on the phone and uh, him making a comment about, I mentioned my wife liking Mike Huckabee at the time, and he says, so, well, you're married above your pay grade. And all of these <laughs> things, they just stick in your mind. But sadly, I wish my memory were better. So that when you say what top three, four, five stories do you think about, you know, I think of winter storms. We had a massive winter storm where, you know, ice was literally taking power lines down. They're collapsing left and right. We came in on a Saturday and did coverage. I think of the shuttle, not the Challenger, but the second one, the Columbia, was it, on Saturday morning? Yes, sir. We all came in. You think of those things. And I love what you said, Bo, a sense of duty. Police officers have it. Now, I'm not in any way likening us to paramedics, firefighters, police officers, military people. They are participants in society at the highest level. We are observers at best. But that doesn't mean that you don't have a sense of duty, because if you do, you're now measured up to what your responsibility is. Information is very important good information. I know, uh, you know, we could talk about other stories for hours, Al. I mean, the, the two officers that were shot uh, back in 2007, Jeff Shelton and Sean Clark, I know your show at that point in time, uh, broadcast from the, the funeral and remember that procession. I want to mention the officers killed and Jeff Katz, who was part of our team at that time. Jeff and I still talk about that. Jeff is a good friend, also from Philadelphia, but now working in Richmond. And believe it or not, living in Boston and commuting Boston to Richmond. It's a long story. But Jeff Katz and I were just very recently talking about that. He did this blue ribbon kind of promotion where people were giving money toward the family. And in exchange, they got a blue ribbon that Jeff had procured. He and I broadcast together in the afternoon. But Jeff Katz and I are in touch. And every time a police officer is injured or killed uh, in the line of duty, Jeff and I are either on the phone or texting or something and talking about officers Clark and Shelton and their families. But you're very right. So many stories over time. In the, in the time we have left, I want to do a little bit of this. Uh, I want to throw out a few names at you that you worked with along the way and just get a few thoughts on them, starting with Danny Fontana. Where should we start? One of my fondest, dearest memories working with that man. He, uh, of course, Danny passed away in uh, 2015, and I remember that morning that I, I got the news uh, shortly after I learned about it. Uh, you and I were talking on the phone, and that was the first time in a while we had talked. Yep. But uh, Danny, I mean, you go back to 1997, uh, as that original show existed, you were in the main chair, and uh, Lauren Fox, and, and I was in there. And then we had, uh, in the beginning, Danny wasn't a, a an everyday fixture, but he was a contributor. Well, I think of one of the most gifted broadcasters I've ever known. I can hear his high-pitched laugh in my head right now while we're speaking. I immediately think of, I remember when we set the show up, it was originally me, Bill Rosinski on sports, John Stokes was also sitting at the table, right. and Danny. And uh, somehow it came up 
what celebrity do we have a crush on? And uh, <laughs> I said, I don't know who I said at that time, probably like Cindy Crawford or That's somebody. That's exactly who you said. <laughs> did, you remember this? I do. We've had the discussion constantly. You know, my wife loves Mel Gibson. So you say, you know, yeah. she said, well, that is the one person that I would be tempted with. You know, would Mel you Gibson. give me permission kind of thing? Who no, gets you I'm, going now? Well, for me, it's kind of Cindy Crawford when she first came out. Yeah. Madeline Albright. <laughs> The laugh you heard on the air was Danny with that incredible high-pitched voice. I think immediately of interviewing a pollster named Ron Van Beek, who Mm -hmm. had a very funny nasal-sounding voice. We were talking about the presidential polls. You remember this, Bo? Oh, absolutely. Well, with us on the newsmaker line is Ron Van Beek. He's the president of American Public Opinion Survey and Market Research Corporation. Ron, good morning. Good morning. How you ask a poll question is uh, really critical to the outcome of the poll. If I ask a question and phrase it differently, I'm going to get a different answer. I think Danny had a question over here, or was it uh, John? John, you had a question. No. What about when you get... <laughs> Do you see a shift coming in the president's positive numbers? Oh, for sure. For sure? By when? By next week, we'll see that this is just a long line of uh, a whole series of problems that the president has. Run. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you very much, Ron. I appreciate that. It seems to me that things remain pretty good. <laughs> Despite reports to the person. contrary, I know I am. A few days ago, <laughs> we're going to get through this, I promise you. <laughs> through the first seven months of the year, inflation remains benign, running at an annual rate of increase. <laughs> Stop laughing, Alan. Just 1.7%. Moments like that that you just, you'll never forget. Well, and here's Um, one thing about that particular day. Uh, You did a four-hour show, and that happened, uh, I want to say, in like the 6 o'clock hour that you all had him on. Uh, You all would crack up in the middle of segments that had nothing to do with that uh, an hour, two hours later. The theory during the first half of the year was for a bias towards higher interest rates and that forecast. (laughs) Oh... Why don't I just tell you, folks? Big sad thoughts. Why don't I just tell you? You total it all up. Interest rates low, inflation low, the dollar is strong, profits are up. Folks, those are fundamentals. We remain optimistic. I am a less than apologetic. (laughs) Ron Van That is how much it brought the room down. And I remember you were looking at me to kind of bail you out to give you some sort of serious face, and I I was gone too. (laughs) Oh, yeah. All I saw was... Bo, his head was on the desk and his shoulders were bouncing. I remember that. I could draw you a picture of that. His shoulders just bouncing. Danny was gone. Just gone. But I'll say this. Did you ever know anyone who knew finance any better? No, and I so often wish, and it's almost like a muscle memory, when something happens with the Dow or there's a big financial story, I start to call Danny Fontana, and I can't do it anymore. I know. And, and I think about what he would say. And some of the stuff he would I can still hear him saying, you know, the inmates are running the asylum, Al, and nobody knows nothing. That's and, the three words right there. Nobody knows nothing. If he were alive today and, he, and everybody tries to predict the market, and he hated market timing and he hated day traders. That's what he would say is, remember, all these experts, nobody knows nothing, including me. You had two co-hosts during your era as host of Charlotte's Morning News. The second one, Stacy Sims. Talk to me yep. about Stacy. Top shelf. She is now sending her daughter to college. I just uh, was in touch with her. I think I put a little note on her Facebook that basically said, and Bo, this is important for you, too. I have two kids. When the first one goes away to college, that's tough. That's tough. When the second one, the last one goes away, and I guess if you have three, it's the third one, or if you have four, it's the fourth one, that's where the rubber meets the road. Be ready for that because nothing can prepare you. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, Stacy and I had a great time for a great many years, and uh, we didn't lose the license. I think that was the most important thing to say. You mentioned David Chadwick. Uh, we talked about Stacy. We talked about Danny. We mentioned John Stokes. A lot of different interviews, and, and sometimes uh, interviews were memorable because they were funny. Sometimes they were memorable because, well, uh, they were newsworthy. Uh, newsmakers you used to call it the newsmaker line that you would go to. Yep. Is there a, a person or an interview uh, that sticks out uh, most during the time that you were on the air at WBT? 
I, there are just so many. It's a really great question. And as you shift through your mind and you're kind of going through your mental Rolodex of people that you've talked to, uh, I think the one that stands out to me was the young man who we talked to, I think, four times. I have three of them on CD for my kids' kids' use down the road. Uh, first time we met a gentleman named Barack Obama. And I remember when we talked to him, I was very impressed because he actually changed my thinking a bit. He was, I think he had this ability to unite. Immediately you got this sense when you were on the phone with him, uh, two things really, one, that it was a different kind of politics from what we were experiencing or what we were used to. You know, it wasn't that we can make gains at the expense of other people, but rather if we could give health care to everybody, which was a very dicey issue at that time. You know, if you can get health care to everybody, well, you've got, you know, a healthier workforce. That's more productive. My stocks go up. And, you know, he, he was the first guy who talked in those terms. If you can offer education at a higher level, college where it's more affordable, then you're going to have a better educated workforce. And that's more productive. And that will be reflected in my stock portfolio. So I got the sense, number one, that, OK, he was a Democrat. I think a lot of Charlotte might have been uncomfortable with that, you know, more the suburbs than the city. But he talked in ways that you, I felt were unifying. And I was very impressed with that. Um, I think of the four interviews we did, we did one where he was very tired. He was lonely. He was away from his daughters, away from his wife. And he really opened up as a person. And I think that's probably, of all of the interviews, interviews I've done, I think that's probably the most memorable because I saw him as a human being. And I really had a sense that day that he could win because he was so relatable. I remember watching the, the primaries and the field gets whittled down. I remember sitting on the bed with my wife and watching these. I'm a political junkie, as you are, so <laughs> both oh, of yeah. our wives are used to us watching, hey, <laughs> let's, uh, let's sit down and watch uh, campaign speeches. But I remember watching him and thinking, <laughs> something's going on right here, and, and no matter what side you're on, you need to pay attention because this is the beginning of something. You are witnessing a rise that has a long way to go. You, that's quite eloquent, Bo, because that's really what I'm trying to say. And you just said it better. I felt like I was witnessing something. It was, you know, <laughs> I actually had the privilege of booking the interview a couple of times myself. So I talked to the handlers and they second or third time said, hey, we enjoyed talking to you. So we want to talk to you again. So we milked it for four different interviews <laughs> and we talked in, you know, four different uh really subject matter one might have been foreign policy one might have been the law who knows i, I, I have no recollection of that i go back and listen to the cd probably should because they were fun to listen to but there was that one of those four and sadly only three of them are on cd that i have uh, the one of the four where he was really tired uh it was in the evening we had to come back in you know as you and i know we do the mornings but every once in a while you have to come back in the afternoon or maybe you have a, show, a, stu a studio at home, so you're able to do it there. But I had to come back in, and like 7 o'clock at night, that was when he was available, that's when we did it. And he was very tired. And I even asked him, uh, you know, you sound uh, like your usual self, but maybe uh, missing a couple of energy points. How are you doing? And then he went into this big thing about how he missed his family. And, you know, it was this, you know, all of a sudden I didn't feel like I was talking to this, polished candidate who was sticking on message, but rather it was a guy like me who, when he's out of town, he misses his wife and kids. And I was struck by that. And I thought, he's gone places. And darn if he didn't win. Over the years of doing a morning show, you have to make contacts and you have to uh, cultivate those contacts, and uh, sometimes it figures into your head, am I going to come out of the gate with a scorched earth mentality here, or am I going to maintain this relationship <laughs> so that we can talk for interviews to come in the future, right? Absolutely, and the, the dicey part about that is what you and I do for a living, we never prepare people. You know, hey, right. I need to know the first question so I can prepare. No, we don't do that. What we, you know, Or, you know, I have a prepared list of questions, but we don't do that. You know, what I did say occasionally was, look, you know, it's great to have you on the line. Stand by. We'll be talking on the air in just a couple of minutes. Uh, I am going to rough you up for about the first two minutes. So stand by for that and be ready or something like that. Yeah. Uh, but that's the closest you can ever come to tipping your hand because your obligation is to your listener. Not of course. To him. Exactly. And you, you know, you say you learn from me. I learned from you. You know that better than I do. Your your arms are on your listener every morning better than mine. 
Well, I I would I disagree with that. I'm I'm thinking of you when I'm doing that. So, uh, but hey, <laughs> the, the respect level is is uh, mutual. I know, uh, and uh, indeed. As we uh, near the finish line here, Al. As I said earlier, you in the modern era held that position as the host of WBT's morning show longer than anybody else, nearly 15 years. When you think back uh, on your years in Charlotte at WBT, just just moments, what, what comes to your mind? I just think that my job every day when I get up and went in was just don't screw it up. This is Ty Boyd built this. Grady Cole built this. H.A. Thompson built this. There are people who were here long before you. Don't screw it up. Remember, there's a sense of duty and there's a level of excellence that you have to meet in order to meet your own standard, but really more importantly, in order to maintain what that community has created. WBT. It's a treasure. Guys like Rick Jackson got that. That's why there's a WBT Hall of Fame, because of Rick Jackson. Guys like Bill White, literally the two finest people I've ever worked for. They got that. The WBT isn't just three letters, and it's not just the stick in the ground creating sound. It's a part of Charlotte's DNA and always will be. A lot of people listening who listened to you for so many years, Al, may wonder what's Al Gardner up to in 2019 uh, in the years that you haven't been on the air here in Charlotte. Uh, what, you, what have you been up to? Well, I'm going to every single Phillies game, home game this week. Uh, <laughs> doing a lot of songwriting and composing. I don't know if you remember this or not. Absolutely. But I was privileged to have a piece I performed and arranged played by the Charlotte Symphony. And uh, having 115 pieces perform My Little Waltz was one of the greatest moments next to the birth of my kids. I mean, you just can't describe that. And this right here is the demo version that you composed and then presented to them, and then they went on to perform this. that allowed me to have an affiliation when we retired we moved to florida but my wife and i didn't like florida we missed our kids so we came back to philadelphia where our family is but while we were in florida i affiliated with the venice symphony and uh, was doing some things with them was on track to have some pieces performed and now here in philadelphia i'm in contact with not only the philadelphia orchestra but rowan university who has an incredible orchestra and a great music program so hopefully i'm going to get the music box waltz uh, performed here in philadelphia new jersey uh, and i've now since written five other pieces so i'm up to six symphonic pieces and i'm trying to do some things with that so between that and writing jazz music with a local jazz singer named greg farnese who just this past weekend we wednesday rather performed uh, at a place called Catelli Duo performed a new song we just wrote. Uh, so that's basically how we're uh, spending our time and having a lot of fun and eating entirely too much. How do you define the Al Gardner era? What's, what's the Al Gardner legacy? What do you want it to be? Just that we did the job. We did what we were asked to do. We hopefully carried on a sense of duty, and we maintained some of, although not certainly the level of excellence, of what a Ty Boyd once did and what a Bo Thompson is doing now. And what does it mean to have WBT on your resume? A button-popping sense of pride because of the managers, Rick Jackson and Bill White. This podcast, in a general sense, and all the people I'm talking to leading up to and maybe past, if this is successful, this Century podcast is all about this century, looking back at how not just WBT has changed and evolved, but how the city of Charlotte has evolved at the same time. And I'm going to be talking to not just uh, radio personalities, but also movers and shakers within the community, many of which you talked to during your time period here. But uh, you hosted Charlotte's Morning News almost 15 years. And like we said, longer than anyone in the modern era, by my calculations. And I, I'm curious, you arrived in the fall of 1997 and, and you were here until late 2011. 
Uh, how yep. how do you or how would you say the city of Charlotte that you covered and you watched and you raised a family and how did it evolve during those almost 15 years? Well, you're absolutely right. And I think there are, I don't want to be too long winded, but I do have some things to say on this. Yeah, we started in September 97 and then finished up on the very last day of 2011 uh, because I had to be in New York for the new job in 2012, January yeah. 1. But uh, when we first got there, I remember Charlotte was, it wasn't all that long ago that Bank of America was NCNB. Uh, and, you know, the Panthers were relatively new to this mix. And, you know, there was so much evidence around town of the Grady Cole Center and the era, you know, of, of Ty Boyd and all of the, all of the things that really is Charlotte's DNA. But you got a sense immediately by talking to the Max Mullimans of the world, uh, a marketer, incredible man. The few times we had a chance to interact with Hugh McCall, Johnny Harris, of course, uh, Jim Rogers of Duke Energy. You got a sense that, at least I did, that when I came to Charlotte, I was body surfing a wave that was about to really go. I had just gotten on board and all of a sudden, this wave was going to go really high, and then it was going to zip me into shore. And uh, literally, I was with Rick Jackson and someone else when I met Danny Fontana at Morton Steakhouse. He was having dinner with Pat McCrory. Yeah. And we all came over, got together, and, hey, welcome to Charlotte, boom, bang, bang. And you immediately got a sense that there was an energy and it was going somewhere. I recently read, Bo, and you saw this undoubtedly, Charlotte has vaulted past Indianapolis. is now like number, what, 16 in the market or 18. Yeah. Um, you, you knew then that good things were happening. What we didn't know was how dramatically wonderful the changes would be along Tryon, where suddenly in Uptown you had all this wonderful nightlife and restaurants. You know, an area that was blighted with check cashing places was suddenly Johnson and Wales. And places in South Charlotte where Ray Road used to dead end were suddenly ballantining their way to beautiful mini mansions and restaurants and, you know, wonderful shopping areas uh, along Archery Kell and areas that were forest not yeah. too long ago. I think not only was it a great time to witness the wave, but I think this had the net effect of changing America's perception of what Charlotte is. Yeah. You know, it used to be, oh, yeah, you Bible thumpers and, you know, Billy Graham Boulevard and all this kind of stuff. But today you've got this incredible financial hub and this wonderful culture center, you know, with all these incredibly talented people running around and causing the growth that we just talked about. So I would say that's my perception is how it went from from Grady, the Grady Colt era to the Bo Thompson era, which is the are these beautiful Ritz-Carlton skyscrapers and a lifestyle to match. Well, and the very important Al Gardner era, connecting <laughs> uh, those two and many in between. Uh, you mentioned something a few minutes ago uh, that you, every once in a while, would come in to record an interview in off hours if it was a big enough deal. And, of course, Barack Obama qualifies but I have to tell you, uh, I am recording this interview, this podcast interview, in off hours, and it's because Al Gardner's on the other end. And I, I really appreciate your time, and uh, it's been fascinating. I know you very well. You've been very instrumental in my career, but I've learned a lot, too. And I'm finding, as we do more and more of these podcasts, that there's always more to the person than I ever knew. And that's, that's fun as well. So thank you, uh, and, and we'll talk again soon, and we always do. And, and thanks for what you did for Charlotte and, and, and what you continue to do inspiring people like me. The privilege, the pleasure, the honor are mine, Bo. And since we mentioned Morton Steakhouse, <laughs> let's enjoy one together, or two or three, or more. And when we do, we'll, uh, we'll toast to the memory of Danny Fontana. How about that? Absolutely. That'll be the first thing we do, my friend. Thank you so much for this, and congratulations on a great podcast.